Joshua 1, beginning in verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses that the servant the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross the Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Well, we begin this morning with an exposition of the book of Joshua. I will attempt this morning to provide an introduction to this glorious book, to exposit the first nine verses, and to reintroduce us to particular chapters of redemptive history that bring us up to the time of Joshua, all the while pointing forward to the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal. With the Lord's help, we're hopeful that I can accomplish the task, and everyone will have ears to hear. Amen? You've been praying for me this week? Good. I pray for you, so I hope you pray for me. All right, let's pray, and then we'll proceed. Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you for the church, your church, for this particular congregation, and how I ask for help um, as a weak man to declare your truth to weak people in need of spiritual strength moment by moment, day by day. Help us, Lord, to grow, to know that um, you are with us wherever we go and that only you can provide the strength you command us to have. So help us to be courageous in the age in which we live as we learn from this text, for Christ's sake. Amen. Joshua is the key figure in this account. His name literally means the Lord is Salvation. The Lord is salvation. Jesus has the same name. Uh, the Greek version of the Hebrew, um, Joshua. He is Yeshua. And this Joshua foreshadows the greater Joshua, Messiah. Yeshua, who is salvation. 
This historical book is about the conquest of Canaan, the land that God promised to his old covenant people. As I said earlier, at this point in history, that was a 600-year-old promise first given to Abraham, passed on to Isaac, and then to Jacob, and down the line to God's covenant people. For 200 years, Abraham, he had a son, Isaac. He had grandsons. He had great-grandsons who would eventually find their way to Egypt and would prosper there. They would prosper in Egypt when Joseph ruled under Pharaoh. But as the years passed, prosperity would turn to slavery and misery for 400 years. And by the time Moses appears, many generations of Israelites had come and gone, I'm hoping, but never entering the land. Now, 40 years before Joshua 1, okay, 40 years before Joshua chapter 1, Moses had sent in 12 spies to the land of Canaan to look at it, to observe it, to give report. And it was only Joshua and Caleb who returned with a good and courageous report saying, let us go up at once and occupy the land. The others said, no way. There are giants in the land. We're like grasshoppers. They will devour us. Only two men from that day will enter the promised land, and that is Joshua and Caleb. The rest of that generation all died in the wilderness. So the man we encounter in Joshua 1 is an 80-year-old man. Okay, the brother is not ready for the nursing home. He's not even looking to retirement at this point because the pinnacle of his life's work is ahead of him. So much for retirement. You may retire from your livelihood. No one retires from ministry. Or they shouldn't. Now, Joshua's commission here was to lead God's old covenant people into Canaan. It was a very significant thing in its place in redemptive history. But ultimately, beloved, it pointed forward to Jesus, the greater Joshua, to a greater redemption that will be accomplished through the almighty conqueror himself our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we, we need to clearly see that history in the Old Testament is a declaration from God about God. A declaration from God about God. And I say that because the Bible is often taught by preachers in a way that highlights the human agents of redemptive history to emphasize their good and evil their deeds, as a moral example or as a deterrent. That's not how you read the Bible. 
Bible teaching then becomes a, a Bible story approach that puts mankind at center, usually out of context, stressing those examples which inevitably leads to just widespread morality. Morality is good, but moralism is not the gospel. Moralism is not the gospel. That's where many people make their mistake when they teach the Bible is Bible stories. So that example method is something we hear much of in our day in current um, liberation theology, for instance, where the exodus motif, right, the great exodus, is considered to be the incentive for cultural change. Now, in the Bible, the exodus is about redemption, okay? The Bible, the exodus in the word of God is, is not... Uh, deliverance merely from physical oppression, but it's deliverance from sin. Sin. Pointing forward to the exodus that Jesus Christ alone will provide. And earlier in the service, I mentioned uh, the transfiguration where uh, Jesus leads Peter, James, and John up a mountain. He's transfigured before their eyes. They fall in utter fear, and they look, and who do they see? The scripture says in Luke 9, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure. The word for departure literally is his exodus. Old Testament exodus points forward to that exodus. Our redemption, salvation from sin. Now, as we work our way through Joshua, it's a book filled with ancient words describing an ancient battle and um, ancient ceremony. And it describes the history of our fathers and mothers in the faith. And in it, beloved, we see that they fight. They fight. God says repeatedly in the first chapter, verses 6, 7, and 9, be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. Again, I say be courageous. And one very simple reminder for us as we work our way through this book is to be well aware of the fact that we're in a fight. We're in an ongoing spiritual battle. And friends, whether we like it or not, God's people are expected to be soldiers. Look at the words of Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. We're in an ongoing battle, beloved, for truth. We're here to battle for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're here to battle for goodness. We're here to battle and contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. And the book of Joshua tells us how to be victorious soldiers and how to claim the spiritual inheritance that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are lessons that we'll learn along the way, to hold that faith for our lives, to pass that faith on to the generations that are to follow us. 
That is our role. That is our responsibility. Challenged as we are daily with opposition from a pagan, secular, godless, haters of Christ society. Be courageous because the flesh will want to have its way to find a way out, to find an escape, to go with the flow of the culture in order to be accepted by culture. That's the test. That's the pressure. And it's the temptation to embrace a false gospel, a substitute gospel, another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. We just finished 2 Corinthians. What were they guilty of? Embracing false teachers who preached another Jesus, another gospel led by another spirit. We're called to be courageous. Opposition surrounds us. Therefore, be strong and courageous. We need courage for the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel. Courage to say things that are right and true in a culture that says you're a bigot. Courage to say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him in a culture that says that's hate speech. You need courage. We need courage to say that God made humans male and female, period. We need courage to say that marriage is between a man and a woman, period. We need courage to lovingly say that homosexuality is an abomination, period. Not long ago, that was the consensus of our nation. Now, it's the minority. Be courageous, says the Lord. Now, as we make our way through this book, we will not cover every chapter. We'll work our way through the first 11 chapters. When we get to chapter 12, um, What we have there is a detailed list of 31 kings defeated by Moses and Joshua. In chapters 13 to 21, um, they contain for us a lengthy and very detailed description of how the land of Canaan was to be divided up amongst the Israelites and their families. Legal documents, really. Deeds. Land deeds. Which is a glorious testimony to the fact that God is faithful to keep his promises. But to preach through those chapters, that would be like you know, reading the will of some massive estate that's being divided up amongst family members, right? It's all important stuff, but it's just not very preachable. Are you with me? So we will fast forward through um, certain portions of the book, I'm just giving you a heads up you know, for the coming months. Okay, so here then, the context. As I read from Deuteronomy 34 earlier, there is a death and funeral just prior to the homegoing of Moses. If you glance over at Deuteronomy 34, God takes him to the top of a mountain, showing him from um, the high point the promised land. In verse 4, Deuteronomy 34, uh, there's the promise that God will take his children into that land, that promise is again restated. And then in verses 5 and 6, we have the the, the death and burial of Moses. God himself performs the funeral. And notice that Moses dies at his peak. 
The brother had no need for glasses. Clear eyesight. Notice, unabated vigor. He went out alert, bright, and undiminished at 120 years of age. Imagine. And then in verse 8, the, the nation wept and mourned for a month. We might get an hour. After which comes the passing of the torch. And notice how the Lord comes to Israel's new commissioned leader. Verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. God begins very matter-of-factly. Moses is dead. Okay, friends, the man that Joshua must follow is a giant, a spiritual giant, head and shoulders above the rest. And in Scripture, you, you find these kinds of leaders, you, you, you can count them on one hand. Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, and the Apostle Paul. You might be able to throw Daniel in there as well. Very few, far and few between, who um, either militarily, politically, and or theologically were, were, were 10 or, or 20 talent men. Very rare. And everyone who follows will pale in comparison, constantly living under their shadow. Now, for the last 40 years, Moses was Joshua's mentor, his daily companion. Joshua is well aware of the fact that he has very big sandals to fill, right? But notice just how God phrases the word to Joshua. Verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. He may have been your best friend. And although Moses was beloved by you, he was my servant, Joshua. He was the tool in my hand. So the Lord is saying, look, although the instrument has changed, my work continues. Friends, God's kingdom is never, ever hamstrung because gifted men pass on. Never. Whose kingdom is it? It's God's kingdom. Who will build Christ's church? Jesus will build his church. If there are heretics at pulpits, he'll still build his church, and he'll remove them eventually. Do we understand it? Understand it well. Be wise with regard to the teaching you sit under. Now, therefore, Joshua, arise. Cross the Jordan. You and all his people to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. Moses may be dead, but I'm alive, Joshua. I'm the living God. My plan moves forward as promised. Now, the thing that we must know about out of the gate, beloved, and again, I said this is a combination of expositing the first nine verses, um, introduction, as well as a view of, of redemptive history. Um, we must know out of the gate 
that God's cause, God's plan is not dependent upon any one of his servants. It never has been, nor will it ever be. It's his. It's his kingdom. No, notice that God makes, remembers, and keeps his promises. In in verses 3 and 4, Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I've given it to you, just as I've spoken to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun, it will all be your territory. That is the Mediterranean Sea. All of it. God repeats here what he has said at least 10 times throughout Scripture up to this point, going all the way back to Genesis, chapters 12, 15, 28, 35, and 50, all throughout the book of Exodus. This is the unfolding drama of redemption. This is God's plan being worked out in God's timing. And he's always on time. So let's take a little journey, all right? A little journey through redemptive history. Look back at Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. Who will? God will. Before they ever enter that land as a people, look at Genesis 15, verse 13. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land. Before they ever enter this land, they will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. So we say, well, how did they get down to Egypt in the first place? Well, through the jealous brothers of Joseph, that's the secondary cause. The primary cause was God, Psalm 105, verse 17. God sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, verse 19, until the time that his word came to pass. Okay, now that resumes the story of God's dealings with the patriarchal family, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, he will make his way to Egypt. Now, Joseph was already there, second in command. Jacob, the father of Joseph, thought Joseph was dead because of the lies of their, his brothers. Psalm 105, verse 16. How does Jacob get there? When God called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. Who's in control of the weather? Who's in control of global cooling? Global warming, God. He called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. So by way of God's providence, he drives the patriarch Jacob and his offspring, all 70 of them, down to Egypt. And that covers the course of Genesis chapters 12 through 50, and they conclude with Jacob dying, and then eventually Joseph is left in a coffin in Egypt. They are favored. They are a favored people in Egypt at that time, having been given by Pharaoh the land of Goshen. 
They're favored. As the drama of redemption unfolds, fast forward 400 years to the book of Exodus. The once favored of people, the once favored people of Israel in Egypt under Joseph have now been turned into slaves. Yet the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. The affliction under Egyptian rule served as a kind of fertilizer, an incubation period where they grew from 70 people to a million and a half over the course of 400 years. Exodus 1, verse 7. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph, who could have cared less about the influence of Joseph. What happened? Secondary cause? The pharaohs of that time were intimidated by the population of Israel in fear that they might team up with other kings, foreign kings, and overtake Egypt. Primary cause? God. Psalm 105, verse 24. And God caused his people to be very fruitful and made them stronger than their adversaries. He, God, turned their hearts, the Egyptians, to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. Who's in control sovereignly? God, not man. Moses is called by God to lead his people out of bondage and into the promised land, but not before God humiliated Egypt and the Pharaoh by way of ten sign judgments, otherwise known as the ten plagues. Every one of the sign judgments was a judgment against one of their false gods. Every single one. Throws them into economic turmoil. Moses leads them out. God divides the Red Sea. He drowns Pharaoh's pursuing armies. Moses leads them into Sinai. God makes covenant with the people. God gives instructions for the building of the tabernacle. God institutes and prescribes his manner of worship and sacrifice. You'll worship and sacrifice me this way and this way only. By way of the tabernacle. Where God's presence would dwell amongst his people. Years later, Jesus comes from out of heaven, takes on human flesh, and tabernacles among us. See this? And then there's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, leading a stiff necked, rebellious, whining, complaining people. Now, Joshua is another chapter in the drama of redemption. And again, it's God who makes, remembers, and keeps his promises, just as planned right here. Verse 5 to Joshua, back to Joshua 1. Verse 5, just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. So here now the nation sits poised on the east bank of the Jordan River, ready to take possession of Canaan. Why now? 
Why now? Well, 600 years earlier, God also said to Abraham, look at it, Genesis 15, verse 16, they, my people, the nation that will come out of you, Abraham, they shall come back here, this land I'm promising you, they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Why? Well, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That's why. Amorites is is a general term for the inhabitants of Canaan. The, the, The Lord is going to give Canaan to the Israelites. He gave the Amorites many, many generations to repent of their wicked sins, vicious sins they were. But they never did. That iniquity raised one level after the next throughout their generations. In Abram's day, the Amorites had not yet become corrupt enough to lose Canaan. But now, they have. You know, the Lord allows people to run themselves into hell, which makes every one of his verdicts fitting. Self-righteousness leads the way. I'm good enough to stand before God. That's wickedness. That's self-righteousness. The Amorites, they were wicked idolaters. Now it's time. Joshua was called to be the instrument in God's hand, the instrument of justice. Justice. He's going to cleanse the land, and he's going to recapture it for the glory of God. Whose land was it? Was it the Amorites? Is that land the Israelites? No, it's God's land. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the hills upon which they graze. It's all his. Make no mistake about it. You own nothing. You're a steward. You're a steward. God owns everything. God will do with his land as he sees fit with the people he sees fit to do it with. We open with Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and, and some of which it contains? No, all that it contains. God is going to order them to level the place. He's going to call for its utter destruction. That's the command, as we'll see in the coming weeks. The Amorites are going to receive justice. If you're in Christ, guess what? You'll never receive justice. You'll only receive mercy, and only in Christ, because he bore the judgment on Calvary's cross. Everyone else, justice, because God is just. His mercy is manifest in one way, one way only, faith and trust in his son, Jesus Christ who was crushed on the cross. It pleased the father, the prophet Isaiah said, to crush the son, to set sinners free, to experience a true exodus. The greater Joshua. So notice now, God is now giving what he promised. In verse two, we read, Arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, 
to the land which I am giving to them. Verse 3, every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you. Verse 6, be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them. Did they earn this land? Did the Israelites deserve this land after 40 years of utter nonsense? No. Neither they nor their ancestors deserve this land. They did not merit this. The, prom the promised land was a sovereign gift. It's a present. This is charity. God is a debtor to no man. You can earn nothing from God. This is all a gift. This is a picture of our salvation. The wages of sin is what? Death. You've earned your wage. You'll die. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus and Jesus alone. The gift. The gift. Ephesians 2. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. That's the way it is with all of God's dealings. A grace-filled gift. Nobody earns anything before Almighty God. We read from Psalm 24, who's worthy to ascend the hill? There's only one who ascends that hill. If you're not in him, you're doomed. The greater Joshua, Jesus Christ. Now again, this Joshua points to the greater Joshua, our hermeneutical key of understanding Scripture, our biblical grid of reading the Bible, is to interpret every Old Testament text and to see how it points to Jesus Christ. Jesus said on, on the road with two disciples who were distraught over his crucifixion, they didn't recognize him, and Jesus spent time with them on the road to Emmaus, teaching them and showing them how Moses and the prophets and the Psalms all point to him. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you know, you seek the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. They are those which speak of me. Friends, the Bible, it's not about you. Okay, the Bible's not about you. It's not about me. The Bible was not written to you. It was written for us, but not to us. Amen? The Bible is not about self-help therapy. The Bible's not even written for, for a, some kind of spiritual experience. Scripture is the proclamation and unfolding of God's great rescue mission to save sinners in Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible's about. All the promises throughout find their fulfillment in Jesus when he would come in human flesh, and he has come. He has arrived. He came in human flesh, a real human body with a real human soul, fully God, fully man. The hypostatic union of our Lord Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man. Some 1,500 years after this conquest of Canaan that's about ready to take place, the greater Joshua appeared in the fullness of time. Jesus, again, the Greek equivalent of Joshua, the Lord is salvation. You remember what the Lord told Joseph about taking Mary as his wife? Mary, who had become supernaturally impregnated by the Holy Spirit with the Son of God. Look at it, Matthew 1 and verse 20. Joseph, son of David, 
Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That is the greatest deliverance to be had. That is the greatest salvation we need. Amen? Salvation from our greatest problem, which is sin. Sin, which separates us from holy God and places us under his wrath and condemnation, and that is a problem that can only be solved by way of payment to God, and you can't make the payment. If you make the payment, that equals eternity in hell. You can make it, but it'll take eternity in hell. This greater Joshua, who was promised and arrived, saves his people from their sins because he made the payment. He made the payment on the cross. So, like the first Joshua, the second Joshua, the greater Joshua, Jesus, was commissioned by the Father to fulfill all the demands of his law and to bring his covenant people to the land that he has promised them. And that is a new heaven and a new earth. The one who was promised immediately after the fall in the Garden of Eden, he shall come and crush the head of the serpent. That Joshua, the promised Messiah warrior who overturns the curse of death that stalks mankind. Death is stalking you. He's conquered death. So Christian, you have nothing to fear. If you're not in Christ, you have everything to fear. Listen closely, because the call for you is to repent, to change how you think about yourself, how you think about God, and come bow down before the foot of the cross and receive Jesus Christ is your only way out and your only way in to the true Canaan. Heaven. Now, notice, God promised this Joshua the conquest of Canaan, and he says to him, I will never leave you, verse 5, nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, unlike Joshua, Jesus was forsaken by the Father. He was forsaken. Think about this. Having always known perfect fellowship with God the Father in eternity past, and now most certainly forevermore, he has perfect communion with the Father. But while he was on that cross, he was forsaken. While he was on that cross, he was abandoned. He was left by the Father, experiencing only the Father's wrath because of our sins, because of our iniquities, which are as bad as the Amorites. All our guilt was laid upon him, necessary for the work of salvation that he would take it upon himself. The greater Joshua had to undergo the suffering of hell on Calvary's cross to provide the good news that we have today, without which there is no good news. That's what this book is ultimately about. So while Joshua of old received the spoils of war, as we shall see, he's going to go in, he's going to conquer, and they're going to gather the spoils of war. The greater Joshua also received the spoils of war. 
prophesied by Isaiah, Isaiah 53 and verse 12. Just listen to this. I don't have it. Just listen. I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. To death. Christ has received his spoils of war, the ultimate conquest of his battle against Satan, sin, and death. And his spoil, his reward, Christian, is you. You understand that? His reward is you, a gift given to him by the Father having redeemed you, the greater Joshua. Although he has not fully received that reward yet. You know when he fully receives it? On the last day, when your body will be glorified. Our loved ones who've gone on to the intermediate state, which is heaven, their body will be raised that day, met with their spirit, and glorified just like his. Then he receives his full reward. He's received it in part, and he indwells us. He owns us. He sealed us with their spirit, his spirit. You're owned. You're a possession. Did you know you're possessed? Every Christian is possessed. Possession has to do with ownership. You're possessed by the Holy Spirit. God owns you. He's sealed you. That's why a true Christian can never be possessed by a demon because you're already possessed. A house divided cannot stand. It cannot serve two masters. You're possessed by the one who purchased you. He's received and will receive his spoil in full. Not unlike the first Joshua. And all of that, though, was temporal. See how it all connects, how the Bible connects? So your salvation has been accomplished in history. It's applied to us now in part to be received in full on the last day when we cross the, the Jordan and we enter into Canaan ourselves. Yeah, that's why there's this prophetic relationship between Canaan and heaven. It's so clear in the Bible that it has led those throughout Christendom to write songs and lyrics and so on um, that, that liken salvation to crossing the Jordan and entering into the promised land. I looked over Jordan, what did I see? Coming for to carry me home. Come on. <laughs> A band of angels coming after me, coming for to carry me home. It was from the history of Joshua that John Bunyan got his idea for his pilgrims crossing a river into Canaan, into heaven, into glory. Now, that's our promise. This is what we have. Now, until then, we have to walk by faith, right? Until then, we're called to be courageous, not unlike Joshua and the Israelites. Be courageous. We walk by faith. So we're called to, to be courageous and to lean in on the promises of God because he always carries out his promises in full. We have to be courageous. So the theme, the, the tenor of God's word is that Christ and his people will triumph. 
That's a fact. The gospel will be victorious, as dark as some days may be. You will cross over. But in the meantime, there are battles. So that which Moses and Joshua were given, they had, they had hope in their time of redemptive history, he also gives hope for us to this very day. And that is that God makes, remembers, and keeps all of his promises. I mean, how is Joshua going to conquer? This dude's 80 years old. You didn't know, did you know he was 80? He's always portrayed as this young, energetic guy. He's an old man. How's he going to do this? Well, not in his own 80-year-old strength. You will not walk as a Christian in your own strength. <laughs> no one can try to be like a Christian. You must become a Christian by the supernatural power and work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Therefore, be strong and courageous. I'll be with you, says the Lord. So, so the hope of his power is the presence of God. The hope of Moses' promise, the hope of Moses' strength was the presence of God. And now it's passed on to Joshua. And notice, in case he forgets, in case his hearing aid, you know, he needs to turn it up. Notice, he says it again in verse 9. And since we're forgetful people, not unlike any one in the Old Testament, he says it again in chapter 3 and verse 7, and then again in chapter 6 and verse 27, and then throughout the book. The hope of his power is the presence of the Lord who will never leave you nor forsake you. His son was forsaken in your place. So that promise, I will be with you, is now, beloved, universalized through the finished work of the greater Joshua. And it includes the entire church. How do we know that? Hebrews 13. You don't have to turn there. Now, as the writer of Hebrews winds down he concludes with all of these admonitions, right? All of these commands. He's talking about Christian character. And we read the Bible when we, we see what Christian character truly looks like by the power and presence and leading of the Holy Spirit. We look, on it, we look at it on its face and we say, man, I am weak, I am helpless. I'm always having to battle in the flesh. How can I do this? I'm weak. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Yes, I am. He tells us, Hebrews 13, verse 5, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What does he do? He quotes Joshua 1, verse 5. Same God, same plan, same promise. Aren't you glad about that? Does God ever change? No, he's the same today, yesterday, and forever. Yesterday, today, and forever. Put it whatever order you may. It's all the same. He's the same. He's immutable. 
Okay, when Jesus had finished his work on the cross, he was ready to ascend back to the Father. And he commissioned his church, right? He, he commissions Joshua and Joshua 1. Here now, after the, after the work of the greater Joshua, he, he commissions his church. Look at it, Matthew 28, verse 16. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority, without exception, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. The apostles took that torch, they carried it on, and they passed it on to every generation, and we hold it to this day. And he promises to be with us to the end of the age. So our commission is also to be strong and courageous, right? In the task of making disciples. That's, that's my job. That's our job to make disciples. And notice it's all centered on the word of God. Look back to Joshua. Verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Jesus said, all power and authority has been given to me in heaven and earth above, or heaven above and earth below. Go therefore and make disciples according to my word. The word that was given to Joshua and the greater Joshua here, who is the word. Make disciples. Be courageous as you do so. Because you'll be opposed. Because my truth will be hated. Because men will try to form me in their image rather than realizing they're made in mine and I call them to follow me. Anything other than that is idolatry. Make disciples be courageous. Remember when Paul concluded his first letter to the Corinthians? That takes us back about two years ago, or thereabout, maybe over a year. When he concluded that letter, um, he said something similar, that God, the words that God uses here for Joshua. In 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 13, he said this, Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Act like men. That means you have to have a spine of steel, not of jello, when it comes to the Word of God. Be strong, be manly in the context to holding on to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints and pass that torch on to the next generation. Be courageous. Why? Why? Because, friends, every day you are assaulted and you are tempted to be weak, afraid, and to relent, to submit 
to culture and their new found religion. And they come up with new religions every five or ten years. Much of the new religion you see today is posted in people's front yards on little colorful signs. That's right. While you live in a world that says, all roads lead to God, so long as you're sincere, so you be tolerant. You better be tolerant, they say. You better join hands and agree. You better submit or else. That's why you need to be courageous. That's why you need to lean on his promises, his truth. Friends, we're simply living in response to what Christ has done for us, the greater Joshua. We live in response, and that's a confession, my friends, that comes at a cost. Deny me before men, and I'll deny you before my father, said the Lord. That cost may mean the loss of friendship. That cost, confessing Christ and his word, may certainly mean the loss of popularity. It may mean a job. That cost may mean peaceful family relationships end. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword. Divide a father from a son. Your enemies will be that of your own household because of me, said he. That's why you need to be courageous. It may mean, man, I can't marry that person. Even though he's really smart and incredibly successful, but he's not in Christ. Comes at a cost. Okay, a couple applicable points to wrap up. I'll be done in five minutes. Applicable point number one, God is immutable. God is immutable. He does not change. His servants may change. Actually, they will change. But the next generation always has the same promise. Whether it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, whether it's you or your children and their children, the promise is the same. God does not change. God's servants change. The Luthers, the Calvins, the Whitfields, the Spurgeons, the Sprouls, they come and go. Giants, no doubt, who leave their mark for us to glean from, but they come and go. God is unchanging. Neither he nor his purpose, his standards, nor his gospel ever change. He doesn't change with the times. He doesn't change with the fads or the fancies of men. He doesn't change with the politics of men. He's unchanging. He's immutable. His servants change. His purposes do not. Pluck up a point number two. God's promises, this is important. God's promise, it's all important. Just don't check out yet. If you have, you, the problem's probably there. Because this is the word of God. God's promises do not negate our activity 
or our engagement, they empower it. They empower it. God promises Joshua, I promise to take you into the land. I promise to take this people into the land. But notice he does not say, therefore, just sit back, let go, and let God. Right? No, he says, take up your sword and fight, Joshua. Fight. So God gives the promise, and then he provides the means which by God's people proceed by faith. We, not literal swords, but the sword of the Spirit. It's not jihad, jihad down here. It's a spiritual war that can only be conquered with the spiritual truth of God's word declared boldly and clearly without compromise. Always in love. Telling people that they're going to go to hell if they're not in Christ, that's not hate speech. That's as loving as you can be. What, are you going to go to the doctor? You're loaded with cancer, and he's going to say to you to make you feel good that day? You look good. Have a good day. Everything's clear. You're an athletic beast. What a lie. Good bill of health. To say you're a good person, you'll make it there, just try hard. No, you're on the broad road, Jesus said, that leads to eternal destruction. Straight is the way and narrows the gate that leads to eternal life. Very few go in that way. Why? Because they love the broad road. To me, God is like, fill in the blank. Promise. I'm leading you into the land. I'm giving it to you. The means, fight for it every inch of the way, Joshua. Christian, fight for it every inch of the way with the gospel. There are people who don't like me. I mean, believe it or not. (laughs) I don't like me, for that matter. But a report came to me this week from someone, through someone, about another who's fighting with the Lord. And my name was brought up. And what they said, I was very encouraged by. Well, one thing I'll say about leader, he's consistent. He doesn't change the message. That's what we're supposed to be about. The sword of the spirit. If you take up another sword, it's not the sword of the spirit. The Bible. The battering ram that breaks down lofty thoughts. It breaks through that wall. It's the word of God. That's the means by which we conquer. So God promises to sanctify his people by way of his word. So we've got to take it up, amen? You've got to take it up and you have to apply it. And it may hurt because the word hurts the flesh. But it builds us up in the spirit. We've got to kill the flesh. I have to kill my flesh every day. I'm a wretched sinner. Murder the flesh by the power of the spirit. I can't even do that in my own strength. God's promises are to move us into action and not slumber. Spurgeon said this, God's promises are prods 
not pillows. He provides the means. Take up the sword of the word because what we have in Christ and only in Christ is of eternal value and that is the promised land, the Canaan, the presence of God. Jesus has died for our sins. He was raised for our justification. Therefore, beloved, be strong and be courageous because only Christ can take you to the promised land, believing God's promises of his glorious, grace-filled gospel. If you don't know him, I plead with you. If you're at home, I plead with you. Forget all the nonsense the world has filled your mind with. Repent, turn to Christ, embrace him by faith, and you shall be saved from the wrath that is to come, understanding that the greater Joshua, Jesus, took it all on Calvary's cross, and he conquered it. Lord, we do thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for all these glorious pictures that point to your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see it. Help us to hear it. Help us to embrace it. Forgive us our sins this day. Cleanse us afresh. Give us the strength that we need because we are weaklings in and of ourselves. And help us to embrace your promises, the promises of old that all find their fulfillment in Jesus, your son, our Lord. For his name's sake we pray. Amen.